0: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts, enjoying a whole new episode of Inglorious Trexperts with guest hosts Peter Holmstrom and Lisa Klink. Meanwhile, you can mosey on over to the Trexperts briefing room feed, an entirely different podcast feed from Inglorious Trexperts, where Darren and I are doing audio commentary for Simon Earth, the second season finale of the original series, as we talk about Gary Seven, Roberta Lincoln, and what could have been. So, Now, listen to Peter and Lisa as they talk to Terry Erdman and Paula Block. And then head right over to the Trexpert's briefing room where Dan and I tell you everything you wanted to know about assignment Earth. Live long and prosper. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July From St. Martin's Press, it's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the Secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback and audio. That is all. Hey Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but you know, <laughs> it, it's it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app. It's better it's on so video. So easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download got... the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then no, it, in press, the United States. Press the button and there it is. There it is. And you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love our new Trexperts briefing room where Darren and myself curate classic episodes of Star Trek with special guests from various Star Trek series talking about the episodes you love. I think that sounds great. us well, I can't let's, wait to do it. Let's go see. What episodes are we doing, Darren? Well, I, we don't want to give it away. Okay. Well, then you need to watch Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts and on the new Treksports Briefing Room podcast feed. Don't miss it. Coming intermittently <laughs> in the coming weeks. Trexperts Briefing Room. It's what every real expert needs.
1: If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> Hi, this is Peter Holmstrom.
2: And this is Lisa Klink.
1: And we are not the Inglorious experts. Mark and Darren asked us to step in for hosting duties today as they are off on assignment. We have a fantastic show lined up. Uh, two very special guests are here to join us. They have a storied history with the Star Trek franchise, have written a number of behind-the-scenes books yeah. on Star Trek, including the Deep Space Nine Companion, Star Trek 101, and most recently, The Art of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, They are Terry Erdman and Paula Block. Welcome to the show.
3: Hello. We're here.
1: (laughs) Guys, thank you so much for being here today. You do have the book. Uh, We have all our books here. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. Um, So, guys, I want to begin kind of at the beginning here. Um, How did you both first discover Star Trek? How did you both first get into it?
3: I discovered Star Trek when I was in high school when it first came on the air and I liked it a lot. And then I kind of forgot about it other than being kind of obsessed with it when I was a teenager. And I went to college and I was at Michigan State University and I found an ad in the school paper mentioning there was a Star Trek club starting up and I went just to see what it was about. And I met a bunch of fanzine people And that started my career in fandom. And uh, eventually at one of the conventions that I went to, I met this guy. And Uh, who was doing promotion and publicity for science fiction films for 20th Century Fox.
4: I had been a traveling musician, played beer joints in saloons all over America real high class and uh it but it it took me in a band into hollywood where i quit and went to school and i got a job working at 20th century fox in their marketing department and they sort of assigned me to their upcoming science fiction films because they had a whole bunch of them and um uh Shortly after that, I got hired at Paramount to be the unit publicist on Star Trek V, the one that nobody likes. And uh, I got to I meet uh, you know all of those people. You know, I was suddenly I was on a private jet with with Bill Shatner, and uh, I've been very involved with Star Trek ever since.
3: And by that time, we were very involved with each other. I yes. had already moved <clears throat> to Los Angeles from. I was living in New York, actually, by then, uh, working for McGraw-Hill Publishing. And I moved to Los Angeles to be with Terry.
4: It's so sweet. It is. It's <laughs> sweet.
3: And uh, as he was working on Star Trek V, the marketing department, the licensing department, one day <laughs> asked him if they, because they were getting a lot more business over there. They were getting tons of comic books and magazines and book books and everything. And they needed somebody. Uh, they asked Terry if he knew anybody who had a background in publishing and knew something about Star Trek.
4: And I said, by golly, I just might.
3: <laughs> so I went in and applied for the job and I was there for 19 years.
4: Yeah. So we've both been pretty well involved. And then over the years, every time there was a new movie, they'd call me to do a little bit of writing or a little bit of research for the marketing department. And uh, and then one day in 1994, they decided... Somebody, Simon Schuster, decided they wanted to do a book about Deep Space Nine. And, and they because, called me up. Yeah. But, and they
3: asked if Terry... They had seen some of his press kids, and they wondered if he could
4: write a book like that. Yeah, so... Um, so I ended up writing the Deep Space Nine Companion. And it was, it was, I had never written anything more than maybe 20 pages, you know, for these, for these production note press kits. And um, about the third year working on the Deep Space Nine Companion, cause it was a, you know, a seven year project for the seven years of the show. Um, sure. I got a call and said, uh, put it aside. We want you to write a book about Star Trek Insurrection. Or third or fourth, whatever year it was. And uh, so I did, and that uh, came out and got published. And then I got a call and said, uh, would you stop <laughs> and do um, a book about the trouble with Tribbles? And oh, I did. That, and that ended up <clears> only <throat> being in April. Yeah, and that got published online. And then I finished the Deep Space Nine Companion. So the first book that I was hired to write with the third one that hit the book stands. It's a very strange thing. And literally, and the D. Space Nine Companion has uh, 549,097 uh, words in it. And wow. I had never written more, anything more than maybe three, 4,000 words. It was, so, you know. Plus, well, Wally
2: How, how was that experience? writing the Deep Space Nine Companion. What was that like?
4: Well, it was, it was amazing because I went to the set. <coughs> the television marketing department was afraid of the actors. I mean, it was it's a bunch of young people who were, they literally, you know, they were just shaking in their boots every time they approached anybody. And I had so much experience because I had worked on movies with, I mean, I'd worked with Robert Redford and I'd worked with, me more and i've worked you know i worked with a lot of actors and uh, so as soon as they left me alone with the direct order to never step around the plywood don't ever go on the steps always stay in the background and don't talk to anybody i'm supposed to write a book right so as soon as they left after about the third day they could trust that i was being a good little boy i just dived in and yeah. I became really good buddies with, with uh, I don't know, Renee Auberginois and, and Armin Schirmerman and Nana and Visitor. I mean, they're all such wonderful people. And within maybe six weeks, I felt like I was one of the crew. And people would call me and say, hey, you want to have lunch today? I've got something I want to tell you. And it was just this delightful experience. I I love those people to death, every single one of them. And then Ira Bear, you know, the Mm -hmm. the showrunner, he invited me to the, uh, I I mean, I asked once, can I sit in on a writing, on a writer's room session? And pretty much I was in all of them all the time. And I spent the next, I spent the next seven years just either on the set, you know, like 15 hours a day, or in the, in the writers room um just constantly taking notes running a tape recorder it was fabulous i mean i i am the luckiest guy ever it was fun
1: that's great yeah you know it, it was such a i imagine it was such an interesting project as well because deep space 9 was uh such a landmark show and, it, and it, it it grew so much over the course of those seven years yeah. and so you're able to yeah. track that process along the way. I mean, that's incredible.
4: Well, I mean, no, nobody else can write a book like that because nobody's ever had that much access. Yeah. But every time a new uh, character would be added, you know, there, there'd be a new Ferengi or a new, uh, a new Klingon, um, when they met, when they came to the set for the first time, um i was there they thought i was part of the crew so i didn't even have to introduce myself as the outside guy they uh they you know they thought that i was important it was wonderful
3: (laughs) then too there aren't uh that many books like the deep space nine companion because there aren't that many producers like ira so he would be completely honest with stuff and we actually had to edit him so that he didn't get in trouble with the studio. Yeah, we,
4: we, we I, I taped everything and we transcribed the tapes but there was a lot of the tra- then we then we edited our transcriptions of the things that we don't dare say that somebody said about somebody. It was, I, although I mean there were no real battles or anything no. that we saw but um it was they were just wide open for you know to just come on in and sit like a fly on the wall and pay attention it was great
1: that's fantastic you know i'm curious too you you said you had done the the promotional work for uh star trek five and um i'm curious if you could talk a bit about I'm, i'm very curious about that movie because like star trek five existed at a time when it was uh It's a sequel. It's a franchise. They they're coming off of a big success from Star Trek Four. They also have the Next Generation coming on the air. Um, But there was a lot of like, you know, uh, new territory they were burgeoning into with both the film and the TV. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about like what the atmosphere was like at the time. And a strange force has entered the galaxy. The future of
3: mankind
0: is at stake it could only mean one thing. Greetings,
2: Captain. Spock! I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. Oh.
0: The vacation is over. Oh. Now, the crew of the Starship Enterprise... Enterprise, are you ready? ...is taking
3: adventure where it has never gone before.
0: What do you stand around for? Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? <laughs> From the mind of a madman. Hostile force has taken control of our vessel. Mr. Solo, full ahead. Through the center of the galaxy. You know we'll never make it through the Great Barrier. To the final frontier. Fascinating. How often have you done this? Actually, it's my first attempt. Fire the rockets! You never cease to amaze me. Nor I myself.
4: This... Is the boldest trek of all. Warp speed now. Star
0: Trek V: The Final Frontier. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. I not
4: nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. Um, the atmosphere on the, the Trek V set was—I had just met these people. So I didn't know ever really how the other four actors were feeling about the three main actors. Um, sure. If there was animosity between you know, the, the, the different main crew members, I never really saw it, but um, Bill was directing. He invited me to be around him all the time. So I was in his office, I was on the set, him, and he was, he was great. It, I mean, I'm sure that you've met him. He jokes all the time. If there's a pun possible anywhere in the conversation, he can't resist and it comes out. You know, so I, that, that was great. But uh, you could kind of tell that he was the boss. Um, Harve Bennett was producer and he was, I think he was a little bit uh, tired. He'd done so much Star Trek by that time. And he he had been really involved in the previous three because he had written on screenplays on all, on you know on Con Home and uh, and the one with the whales as they say mm-hmm. and um, so um, I think he was a little bit burned out and so he but he agreed uh, <clears throat> to do one more yeah he agreed to do one more and he was really friendly with me I mean we we hung out together. But um, he wasn't there as much as I've worked on a lot of different movie sets and Harv was more in the office than he was on the set. So he was somewhere else. The, the, um, the attitude for me, everything was really, really a good time. So if there, was, if there was anything negative going on, I really didn't see it. But also it was my first, it was my first time. So um, I probably missed a lot of stuff. You know, I hung around by the sound man Looking at the little screen rather than getting up closer to the camera, and you know, awesome. but uh, cool. I, I had a great time. I mean, I <clears throat> I didn't. <laughs> I I should admit this. I really didn't know a lot about Star Trek. I hadn't seen <laughs> the original series in original run. I was plenty old enough, but I didn't see it. So it was years later in rerun that I saw occasionally something, and I never saw them like. In order, and uh, and I too. <clears throat> yeah, if I hadn't gone all I would have been in real trouble. But, <laughs> but um, so I was at the same time. I was concentrating on learning what Star Trek was, rather than really in tight with with the production. By the time I was working on Deep Space Nine, I knew so much about Star Trek that I was just relaxed and comfortable all the time. It was it was college. That's what it
1: was paul i'm curious about uh your early times at, at paramount in the nonfiction area too and like you'd seen a lot of nonfiction content coming out at the time for star trek like what was it like navigating that that uh arena
3: i was as a i had a series of bosses over the 19 year period and the last one i had called me the star trek brain trust <laughs> because a lot of the uh executives didn't have much background in Star Trek. So the editor job was great because I had complete control over all of the uh, publishing material that came in. And there was so much of it for a while that I had to take it home on weekends. And then eventually I managed to convince them I needed some help, Uh, but it was great. It wasn't just nonfiction. It was mostly fiction in those days.
1: Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, you guys recently wrote a book together about the art of Star Trek Discovery. Um, yeah. It's a beautiful book, I gotta say, too. It's uh, worth picking up for sure. It's, um covers seasons one and two right now. Right. Uh, I'm curious about the writing process on that because definitely it's under a different... Uh, it's a whole different Star Trek world now. You know, it's... Yeah. it's um, walk us through that.
3: It was probably the most cooperation we'd ever had on one of these books. I mean, nobody ever fought us on doing the other books, but um, this one um, was kind of spearheaded through the um, licensing department, which is now headed up by a guy that I hired to work there. And, uh, And he also is familiar with the whole Star Trek thing. And so he gave us a list of all the people that they had told in advance that we would be calling them. And so everybody was exceedingly friendly to us. They told us anything we wanted to know. They gave us access to their entire digital library of images from the set.
4: Wow. Hundreds of thousands of images yeah that following through to to pick out two hundred, yeah, and I yeah.
3: had to pick them out yeah you know, because they were all there, and they didn't go through them and filter out the ones they didn't want, yeah. you know, which they could have done, and I figured they would do it at the end if they didn't like any of the ones we chose, but there were literally thousands and thousands of images, and to get them all, I had to download them onto my computer, which started to literally say. I can't breathe too much. Um, so I actually had to, you know, buy more space in the cloud to hold all the images. Um, but it was great. Everybody yeah. was so nice, you e- know.
4: Every time we telephone somebody, because uh, uh, Paramount had given us this list of names when we'd call them, we'd link CBS, excuse <laughs> At the me. Time. At time. It's changed, you know. Yeah. yeah and, yes. um, but, uh, you know, we'd call somebody, and I felt like Joan Wilder. They'd say, I've got your books. Yeah. You
3: know? <laughs> yeah, that was also rare. Yeah, the the makeup and art departments and everything. They said, well, I have your other books. Yeah, yeah. Sitting,
4: I'm sitting right in front of them. They're on the shelf right over my head, you know. So <laughs> so we we felt like celebrities when we took call. It was kind of fun that way. And everybody answered any question we asked them. But the questions were different. You know, we've always, you know, ask wardrobe questions and that sort of thing well here we talked about the computers and we were lucky there's been times over the years when we would ask people about visual effects and they would say oh i use and they named some program and that was the end of the conversation because they just used you know they used adobe and um these guys they're they're so alert to what they're doing, they could explain to us the inner workings of how they, it was fascinating.
3: And one thing that I did notice, uh, this was going through a period and it still exists where there was a certain faction of fandom that was saying, that's not real Star Trek, you know, but they say that about every new thing, but it really pissed me off because The people who work on Discovery knew more about Star Trek than the average uh, Star Trek movie because they knew all the background. When they were recreating things for the Enterprise at uh, the end of season one and all through season two, they would go back to all the stuff and they said, "Okay, I want it to look like this. Well, we can't do that. We need different colors and you know and they would just go through the whole thing but they were very familiar with everything related to old star trek
4: yeah Mm. extreme fans everybody working on discovery they're extreme fans
3: but they were very talented you know and uh (laughs) there were times whenever they changed something you know because fans would complain oh this didn't look exactly like that it's slightly different shape it's because they needed to because they they actually put things like Apple products inside the tricorders so that they would have a screen on it. You know, so they had to make it a little bigger so that it would hold a phone or, you know, uh, everything worked.
4: <laughs> yeah, in uh, on the original series, it would be a uh, just a, a prop, a, a prop or a picture. On TNG, they had the echocardiograms, but as fantastic as they are. They didn't really do a lot of moving and things. Nowadays, they just put a cell phone in and you got moving pictures. And yeah,
1: it's great. I love how like in, in TNG, it was the uh, we use a salt shaker as a prop or something. And now oh, it's no, the point right. we're using <laughs> phones as props. <laughs> and it's just... yeah, yeah, no.
3: no, and they knew about that, too. And they said, well, what can we get for uh, the doctor's uh, sensor things? We don't have salt shakers, but we can make something like it. Yeah. And they made I sure do. to make the same sound effect.
4: Well, and, and they explained that they use um, computer printing for so many, what do you call it? Um, the, the printers. Oh,
3: the 3D printers?
4: Yeah, 3D, 3D hmm. printers. They use 3D printers for everything. In the old days, you'd have to, you know, Dan Curry oh, used yeah. to, to make a prop, you used to have to carve out a piece of wood. Now they just draw the picture, push the button, and the machine spits it out. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing,
3: the- you know, and all the paraphernalia you put on the uniforms, they could 3D print that too. So it <laughs> saved a tremendous amount of time for them.
1: Yeah, you know, that's amazing. I, I, it brings up a question for me that you guys might be able to answer. is, you know, it, in during the, the, Rick Berman era, you know, you'd have Michael Westmore doing the prosthetics for the, right. the makeup and things like that. Uh, with Discovery and so forth, if they're still aliens. Is is the process largely the same, or have they act developed new techniques that that such as 3D printing these things? The have.
4: project the the um the process is kind of the same, except that they didn't they don't have to make rubber prosthetics, they can 3D print them. And, well, they're usually
3: silicon or something right. like
4: that. And they also have um, ways of making thousands of colors that they couldn't do when they were just using the, the, the rubber. So um, it's the same, but much, much more advanced. I mean, it's like the Model T and now you got, you know, you got the, the, the whatever, the electric...
3: Yeah. And they're still having people sit in the makeup chair, but it's not nearly the amount of time they used to be. They'd be sitting in the makeup chair. They're putting things on them, but they're creating them in an entirely different world.
4: But they're, they're extremely artists. And the other thing, we've, we've known this throughout the whatever, you know, 35 years or so that we've been working with Star Trek. Um, everybody who has to be working in the art section, you know, that includes wardrobe and hair and, and makeup and sets and all that. that. Um, first of all, they're artists. So they can actually, most of those people can sit down with a paintbrush and a canvas and do that picture, but they're comp- They're doing it on the computer. So they have, you know, they also have those typing skills so they can pop out transparent aluminum. And um, <laughs> it's uh, it, it, it impresses me. It just it, It's not some kid who came out of computer school, it's artists who also did computer school. It's very impressive. That's
1: amazing. You know, Lisa, I'm curious to you too, because uh, when you were working on Voyager, like, I'm always curious, did how much interaction did you have with the art department? And was it like, did art ever influence writing? Or was it mostly writing that influenced the art?
2: I don't recall that we had an awful lot of interaction with the art department. I mean, I think that was more like Rick Berman and his level of, of interaction rather than us uh, lowly staff writers. Right. Um, but, you know, we were certainly inspired, you know, by the designs that they did. And we knew that pretty much whatever we, we called for, they could produce it. Because you're right, they, they're artists, they're genius.
4: Yeah. Well, I was always impressed with the writers You guys, you know, whether it's Ira and his team or Jerry and her team or whoever it was, you're sort of in a room on your own coming up with this stuff. And while you're working, the show is being shot and you don't get a chance to go in. I mean, maybe it's your favorite actor, but you maybe don't get a chance to go down to the set and actually see the person. Um, It's... I mean, it's the ultimate committee work that that I'm I'm always in, almost in shock that something is good when it's finished because there's people who aren't touching one another making it all.
2: It's true. I mean, a couple of the shows I worked on, I mean, they were shooting in a whole different country. Uh, I wrote for a Hercules, The Legendary Journeys and they were shooting in New Zealand. So trying I to find even the time zone to have a phone call was yeah. difficult, much less go down to the set or actually meet anybody.
4: Right. Right, yeah, Yeah. it's amazing.
3: Yeah, we were even invited to go visit the sets in Canada, but we were, it was just too hard of a trek and we had too much work to do. So going up there for a couple of days wouldn't have really done it in terms of the book. So it was much easier to do it by phone.
4: Yeah, sure. we, we, we telephoned a lot of people. We have telephoned many people over the last 40 years. Yes,
3: in <laughs> many countries. <laughs>
1: Now, I'm also curious, because Discovery is a, it's a show that uh, early on had a, a, a specific influence from the Ralph McQuarrie designs for, for Planet mm-hmm. of the Titans, right. yeah. and they've kind of pulled away from that as the shows progress, and I'm curious how you how you saw it evolve over the course of the, the three well, or first, John, four years.
3: John Eves told us a lot about the whole process of how that, was developed, he did like the Macquarie stuff. He also was very influenced, he and the other artists were very influenced by the early space program and the early aeronautics program. They they made a lot of things that had that kind of influence. So they would do, you know, hundreds of sketches and send them over to the producer. And, you know, the person would say, make it a little longer, make the nacelles a little more angular, you know. So, um, and John talks about that process in his, um, in the other book, The Art of Star Trek. uh,
4: John Eves. John Eves, yeah, The Art of
3: John Eves. (laughs) Um, And he talks about his involvement with Discovery in there and talks a little bit about that there.
4: There's a whole, they they, they immediately came up against the wall of changing technology. At this moment, we're each sitting with a cell phone in our pocket that is much, much more powerful than anything that Kirk and Spock and McCoy ever held in their hands. Um, So when you're doing a prequel like Discovery started being, um, where do you go from what we have back to, you know, reverse engineering it back to, what was on this futuristic TV show? That yeah. it's not as futuristic as we actually are. They <laughs> had to they had to find that little line in the middle and do it. So all of their little designs, you know, when they when they redid the tricorder, when they redid the communicator. Um, they, I mean, we had discussions about how many discussions they had. It was a lot and lots of talking and different designs. And they would draw hundreds of pictures rather than just say, oh, it probably looks like this. Um, yeah. they, they had a real, um, you know, a real level to, to yeah. reach in a very strange area.
3: Yeah. And They were always aware of what the original stuff looked like and they were always trying to mesh it with today's technology and and that type of thing. So they were always looking for the best of both worlds, so to speak.
1: I'd imagine that's a very uh, fine line to draw, you know, like they, they talk a lot about uh, enterprise and how the struggles they had with that show as well, just figuring out. And even at that point too, you know, we were, that was 20 years ago now and they we've come so far since then you know yeah. um and and i imagine it, it must continue to be a moving target with with discovery
2: yeah.
4: so very nice. <laughs> well I, I mean i think I don't know why they jumped ahead 900 years, but it got rid of a lot of problems. <laughs> you don't have to worry. That's they probably it. About, but, you yeah, know? that's why. Yeah, because <laughs> well, you know they, they ain't no cannon. You know, cannon yeah, is well, that side what, of the picture.
3: Yeah, that's what Alex said. He said, well, from now on, we don't have to worry so much about cannon because we've moved them out of the range of cannon.
4: So I think that's a good idea. <laughs>
1: Here, searching for that domino that tipped over and started all of this.
2: You believe in ghosts. What does that mean? That badge on your shirt. I watched this office every day, believing
4: that my hope was not in vain. And that hope
1: is you, Commander burner. ship there's the name
0: discovery she has carried us into the future and it will be our privilege to make that future bright
3: let's see how this plays out
2: shall we where will it go wherever the answers are
1: it's amazing uh and t- talk, talk a bit more about that too because this is very much the alex kurtzman era of star trek now yeah. uh whereas you know previously it had been the rick berman era and then before that kind of the Gene roddenberry era you know yeah. like, how do you compare and contrast those for us
4: well um well, Paul has met them all yeah
3: <laughs> uh, alex really loves star trek and the previous people did um not so much jj Mm Because J.J. likes a good movie, a good action movie, but he wasn't really as involved in the getting all the details the same. Mm. Because to him, that just kind of bogged things down a bit. But uh, Alex, who worked with J.J. on a lot of projects, is different. He really likes... Star Trek, and he wanted to be true to it. One of the differences is when uh, J.J. hired the people to work on his movies, he very, very explicitly did not hire people who had worked on the previous movies Hmm. or the TV shows because he wanted to do something new and different. In fact, John Eves is the only one that J.J. got uh, to work on it, and that's because he was so talented that he needed somebody like that but he didn't hire anybody else from any of the previous Star Treks, whereas uh, Alex was happy to get input from all those people. And a lot of them, uh, when we were interviewing uh, the various people in the departments would say, oh, I love this. This was based on an Akuta thing that I did, or this was based on a Rick Sternbach thing, you know? So they really appreciated that stuff. And Alex kind of uh,
4: fostered all those
2: feelings. I'm curious. Uh, he, when you were researching uh, your book for Discovery, what really surprised you?
4: Well, other than the fact that everybody working at it is such hardcore fans, <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that that was the first surprise.
3: It's well, I, it, it's hard to explain. Yeah, the I, whole show. One thing that impresses me and also annoys some of those bad Star Trek fans, I'll call them, <laughs> is that it's a very female-forward show. Right. A lot of the main characters are are women, strong women, and they're ethnic women, Mm -hmm. you know. And I love that about the show, Um, you know. So that's one thing that's different uh, that surprised us that they were investing that much into that. And Alex said from the beginning he wanted to make that he didn't care so much about cost. The previous producers had to really keep the the, uh, expenses tied in. But his arrangement was that he was going to spend what it took to make it look as good as a motion picture. <clears throat> and it really does. And, yeah, and yeah. it does.
4: Well, so. actually, Al- Alex said to us, um, he said, I, "I would like to erase the line between television production and and motion picture production. He thinks TV should look as good as." a major motion picture. I completely agree with him. And I, you know, budget has always been the big problem, but uh, he's find, found ways to get around. Well,
3: it. and he also got involved with this in that mindset uh, right at the dawn of streaming because he realized right. streaming could be really important to the whole media. And it's really lucky he did he, Got into that aspect of it uh, before the pandemic started, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. everybody kind of suddenly depended on streaming for new content. Yeah.
1: Was your uh, work on the book uh, so it would have been between seasons two and three, right? And and they right. hadn't filmed season three at that point. No. I forget the. Yeah. Pr- they had
3: already. Yeah. They were starting to write it.
1: And mm, it was actually
3: okay. before the pandemic
4: started. And we they w- finished right. it
3: towards the end of 2019.
4: I think they were right. still working on the last three or four episodes of season yes. two while we were on the telephone with Yeah. Them. So the, the the phone calls were a little tricky sometimes because we'd ask a question, he'd say, "Oh, wait a minute, I got an emergency. I'll be right back." And we'd sit for 15 minutes with the phone open <laughs> while they went and handled some big problem, and then came yeah. back. And and then and they were working real hard yeah. you know, showbiz <laughs> it's not yeah. a free ride there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> not it's
1: not a free ride oh, <laughs> that is for sure um yeah you know i'm i'm also uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that you guys have also written uh some fiction books in the star trek uh franchise as well was- um recently uh uh deep space nine book called i constable came out um yeah. what was it like shifting gears from working on the behind-the-scenes nonfiction stuff to actually oh, creating well. your own story. <laughs> no, we love it.
4: I mean, we write a lot of non-fiction, but nobody ever sees it. We have a, you know, Paula's halfway through a novel that she refuses to finish. I've written a bunch <laughs> of short stories that I won't let anybody read. So, I mean, so we're we're well up on the, and we read constantly. We read every, you know, we read all the bestsellers and all the Star Trek books, and you know, and we we're constantly so we're very well versed in fiction. We just don't pay the rent with it, but, so um, it was fun.
3: But love. we love doing the three novellas that we did for Pocket uh, on Deep Space Nine, and they wanted them from the to really focus mostly on Pork and Odo as well. So we we wrote with those voices in our head that we had heard for many, many, many years. So a, it was a lot of fun.
4: There's an editor at Simon and Schuster named Margaret Clark, who many people know her name as, you know, as, as, the, as editor at, of, the editor of all that early track. And um, she called us one day and she said, I kind of have different people writing different characters would you guys like to take on Quark and Odo? And we jumped at the chance. Absolutely. So she had an idea for the first of the three books, a little a little nugget. No,
3: she'd actually, she would give us one sentence yeah. for each of those things. Yeah.
4: The first one she said, um, in, in, in Deep Space Nine, Quark had a, um, a video program in his Holosuite and uh, he found out there's a sequel to it and he wants to find a copy of that sequel so he can show it in the Vulcan Love Slave. Yeah, and that and Vulcan Love Slave was the name of him. And he, so he, she said, uh, run with it, do Go a anywhere. story. So we wrote, and she wanted novellas. So they're 50,000 words rather than, you know, 100,000. You should listen to my father. He always warned me this was gonna happen.
0: What, that you'd spend your final hours in jail? I could have told you that. No. He warned me never to leave home. He said there were plenty of business opportunities right outside my door, but no, I had to follow the 75th rule of acquisition. Home is where the heart is, but the stars are made of latinum. A lifetime of scheming and plotting, wheeling and dealing, and what has it got me? One measly little bar. My uncle
4: friend owns 30.
0: And my cousin, Gail. I know. He owns a moon. I told you that? Many times. It's a small moon, but it's enough to live on. Oh, come on, Quark. You've done all right for yourself. Oh, what do you know? Quark, I've met a lot of Ferengis in my time.
3: And the truth is, though some of them may have been more wealthy, I've never met one more devious. Really?
4: Would I lie? I guess not.
0: Thank you, Odo. That means a lot to me.
4: Now, can I have the phaser back? No. Ah! And uh, we just ran with it and we had Quark looking for this uh, videotape. It was was just fun. we completely with the um, with the nonfiction books. We don't really do outlines. We kind of get an idea of the different categories. You know, visual effects, wardrobe, makeup. But uh, with this, we actually drew up a thirty-five page each time a thirty-five page uh, proposal, out, a proposal yeah. an outline almost like they asked for in high school never thought I'd ever use that (laughs) and uh, we did outlines and Margaret approved them and then we uh, we wrote the books straight off of our outlines but we would find things like there were in in the outline it says uh, Odo goes and talks to a guy and gets some information leaves and while we were writing we said oh you know what when he gets to the guy's office the guy's dead (laughs) <laughs> you can you can do that, and Lisa. You know that as a writer, you yeah. you you throw in the the unexpected, and it was really different from the nonfiction, except that the sentences and the words and the paragraphs are are your tools. You know.
3: Yeah, but it was a lot of fun. We'd like to do more fiction writing, but. <laughs> We never know what, we just answer the phone and say yes or no when somebody calls and says, would you
2: write this?
4: Yeah, (laughs) and I won't send you my short stories because I'm afraid to have it.
2: (laughs) Did did Paramount have anything to do with the the novel novellas and uh, novelizations? Did you have any input from them? By
3: that time, um, well, the studio split in 2005, I think, or 2004 at the end of that. And then it was just CBS and Paramount. Paramount got to keep all the movies and CBS got all the television, which Paramount was not too happy about, but um, so, which is why they eventually got back together. Um, But so we were working just for CBS on those things. And CBS, I think uh, got they hung on to Simon & Schuster, Mm-hmm. So, so that was still on that side, and by that time, after 15 years at Paramount, I was transferred over to CBS. So I spent the next four years working for CBS, but doing the same stuff.
2: Okay.
4: Yeah. So Paramount really, I don't know if today if they have much to say either. So well, mentioned...
3: no, they they've linked up again yeah. so that they can be more involved in the whole thing, and mm-hmm. so now it's Viacom, CBS, and. Paramount gets to have a say on everything in addition to CBS.
4: And pretty much, I think Simon & Schuster does most of the fiction, the Star Trek fiction, and other companies like Titan yeah. and, and um, Insight Editions do yeah. the nonfiction books.
3: Yeah, because uh, Simon & Schuster used to have a contract that allowed them to do all publishing. And after a while, they didn't want it with different people at the head of the company, they didn't want to spend that much money anymore. So they decided, well, the fiction makes us the most money. So they stuck with that and they allowed uh, CBS and Paramount to send ideas off to other publishers.
4: <clears throat> yeah, we work mostly in the field that doesn't make much money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: You know, I'm, I'm curious So you said, you said uh, most of your books, People call you.
4: you no, know, for many, many years the phone has rung. We haven't gone after a project since probably 1995. Um, mm-hmm. We there uh,
3: is uh, one book project that I actually pitched, um, and they finally picked it up, and that was Star Trek 101.
4: Oh, right.
3: Yeah. Because I thought oh, there's a place for that. So I just kept bugging the editors over there and finally they said, All right,
4: all right, all right. right. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like a dictionary, yeah. You know. But um we after the first I mean people liked the Deep Space Nine Companion and they liked the the little pamphlet almost that is the um Star Trek Insurrection the movie Compact uh, The Making of uh, the, the Secrets of Yeah, the little companion book. Um and after that, the phone started ringing. I mean we've gotten called by other companies to work on other projects because of those books. So we've, I mean we've been really, really lucky. Apparently we know how to use verbs because <laughs> we've never applied for a job, but we've gotten a lot of them. We've worked on motion pictures for other companies. and I mean, we're just really, really lucky. The telephone rings. And uh, if if we know anything about it, we'll and we're free. Yeah. We take the job. We've turned a bunch down. I mean, yeah, some,
3: because if it's something we really only accept projects for things that we that we like, you know, because otherwise it's really hard to get into yeah. something. And absolutely. And honestly, these books don't pay very much. So yeah. if you're not enjoying what you're doing
4: forget it. I
3: don't want to do a
4: book about the Power Rangers. Thank you. <laughs> no, we, we, got, we got a call to do a book about the Power, pu- power Puff Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We don't know. I've never watched the Saturday morning show or yeah. whatever it is. So we we mentioned a friend. They called the friend and yeah. he got the job. Yeah. Um, the same thing happened um, I forget yeah. the couple. There's been three or four of them yeah. that we've turned down. Uh-huh. Yeah. But but like, like the question is the phone rings yes the phone rings we are really lucky so
3: you know and uh after we did the star trek costumes book for insight insight editions um the editor called us one day and said how do you guys feel about the movie labyrinth and i went oh my god i love that movie you know (laughs) david bowie was still alive and we were really hoping we could get him because we got everybody else but yeah, but this, he died right before we were going to Yeah, call they, they,
4: they, this is an object lesson that maybe everybody should hear. Oh. We made a list of people that we we would like to talk to about the movie Labyrinth. First of all, it's the Henson family. You know, the the kids run run the company. Um, the the puppeteers that work on Sesame Street also worked on the movie. So we wanted we made a list of all those people and we called them all and of course on the list was Jennifer Connolly who we spoke with on the phone and mm-hmm. um, and David Bowie. and I thought we'll leave him till last. He's the the cherry on the top yeah. of the cake and we'll yeah. leave him till last. So you know we, well, worked... we also
3: wanted to you know by this time we'd made a good impression on the other people right. they could tell Bowie this is a yeah. serious. So boy. we
4: waited um, we, we wrote for about four months. And we were really down to the Bowie was Bowie and some quotes worked into the body of the text was the only thing we were missing, and I had on my call book call Bowie's manager whose number we'd gotten on uh, Monday morning, and on on Sunday Sunday well it was it Saturday night Yeah, the, our editor called and said turn on the news and Bowie oh. had died, and oh. I'm so heartbroken. He he may have spoken to us, and if I had not put him as last, yeah. so probably you should start as early as possible. <laughs> yeah, put, put, put the good stuff up front. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll never yeah. make that. But necessary. we got everybody
3: else. I mean, except for Jim Henson, who had also died. Yeah,
4: but he'd been dead
3: earlier. for twenty years. But we got to talk to George Lucas, uh, who wow. produced the movie.
1: That's awesome.
3: And yeah. everybody in the Henson organization except for Jim
1: they but just, uh, they had
3: all worked with Jim on the movie
1: Yeah,
4: so. yeah that's well, uh, I mean, get, that was a lot of fun but uh but here's an object lesson don't leave your wish list <laughs> flip it over you know
1: it's uh it's good words to live by really it's um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know looking back on on all the books you've, you've written uh is there anything that stands out to you as just being like wow, this is shocking. We had no idea about this. It, that just sticks out in your mind of like the the, the the gold prize that you've learned over this time.
4: <laughs> Silly stuff. Um, uh, Peter Jackson is going to make a movie about King Kong. Sure. So we got called once again by Margaret Clark uh, to do a, a making up book and she was working with somebody to do the novelization. And, but there, was, there were thoughts that Jackson wasn't going to want these books. You know he's, he's wanted to make his movie stand out without all these ancillary projects. And uh, so we um, we went over to Universal Studios, Margaret Clark and I. And they locked us in a room, locked us in a room with a script, <laughs> gave us an hour to read it, and then came, unlocked the door, took the script away from us, and we had to go home with our memories and try to write something. That, that was how tight it was. And then uh, it, it turned out we were right. Peter Jackson did not want those books written. And so that was over. So, oh, so it ended up that we wrote, <laughs> yeah. because no, so we have the background right.
3: for the cereal.
4: <laughs> yeah. So a few weeks later, three, four weeks later, Margaret calls me and says, uh, here's one for you. The, uh, the Universal Licensing Department has gotten a deal with uh, Kellogg's. And I want to put some King Kong stuff on the cereal box. King Kong <laughs> Tri-
3: trivia. Yeah, King Kong cereal box. cereal, boxes. cereal
4: <laughs> license. And she said, we need 25 questions about real gorillas and 25 questions about the King Kong movie. Um, can you write them down? And I, we said, yes. And, and she said, and the, uh, and the price is $250. And I Woo! said, sure, what the heck, why not? <laughs> so we actually have written for the back of Cornflakes box. Awesome.
2: Did you at <laughs> least get free cereal? <laughs> that,
4: yeah, that, no, yeah. I never did get yeah, free <laughs> But that, I mean, but that kind of thing was fun. But the other one that stands out for me, I don't know about you, but I did a um, the companion book to the, Paula was too busy. Oh, you The didn't remember, To The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise mm-hmm. movie, The Last yeah, Samurai. Sure. That one was and totally him. That, Yeah, and... Um, had the same kind of thing they were shooting in New Zealand which there's this time zone thing you know somehow time around the world is broken and it never works <laughs> together and uh, so they took me over to Universal because they were producing the movie and in the middle of the night it was like 11 o'clock I showed up and they gave me an office and the Publicist in New Zealand had lined everybody up to talk for either a half an hour or an hour the producers, the director, a couple of the actors, the wardrobe woman, the makeup person. And um, I sat at Universal all night. The phone would ring. I talked, you know, interview somebody, wait, the phone would ring uh, uh, throughout all of my dark hours, which were their mm-hmm. light hours. And it worked out perfect, but I didn't have Tom Cruise. So, um, after they had finished and Tom was back in the States, they said he would call me. So it was arranged that you know, at 2.30 on Friday afternoon, you're going to get a call from Tom Cruise. And he did, sure enough, you know. He was in a plane. Yeah, he he must have been on a plane because we talked for about 20 minutes and all of a sudden it went dead. And uh, so I just hung up and well, you know, I've got it. And the phone rang and said, this is Tom and talked for another maybe 20 minutes. The phone went dead again, and he called me back again. So I can legitimately say, Tom Cruise called me three times in an hour. (laughs) So that stands out, you know.
1: I bet. I bet. Um,
2: Uh, I was wondering, uh, of all the movies and TV shows, uh, past and present, what would you most like to work on a behind-the-scenes book about?
4: Well, that's a really good question.
2: It is.
4: Um, the answer is the West Wing, oh, yeah. but a modification, because it's the best thing that's ever been produced, I think, but the modification of it is, is we didn't, we did work on it a bit. Yeah. Um, they wanted, <laughs> they wanted a, um, introduction for the, a book written by somebody else. And they wanted it in, um, what the heck is his name?
3: Oh, uh, Martin Martin, Sheen.
4: Martin Sheen's voice. So I went over to the studio and spent an hour in the trailer with Martin Sheen and interviewed him. He told me about the show and all of that. And then I took it home and I wrote this introduction. And uh, I liked it. I sent it in. And the the producer, John Wells, loved it and called me and said how much he loved it. And then um, they gave it to, I mean, he called me as soon as he got it and read it. And then they gave it to Martin Sheen, who totally rewrote it. And what's in the book has the information I had, but it's completely Well, it's more in
3: Martin's voice.
4: Yeah, yeah, I mean, but he changed it around. He put the last paragraph first and did some things like that. So um, I'd like to think that I wrote the introduction to the West Wing book, that I would like to have written the whole book, but I can't even claim that that's the truth. But probably (laughs) that, and maybe... What else? Buffy. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: Buffy. Yeah, Buffy. Buffy. Or, yeah, or going back in time, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., except nobody's still around from yeah. that.
4: No, Paul, Paul is the world's biggest Man From U.N.C.L.E. fan. <laughs> and uh,
3: But I was very happy that, um, what's his face? It was on, who wrote in the first season of Deep Space Nine?
4: Peter Fields
3: no him too but oh, he wrote for yeah. uh, the man from uncle but there was a different guy sam who, sam i forget sorry, yeah but he actually was the one who created the man from uncle and did everything yeah. from the start and he did write for deep space nine the first year but he was kind of on the edge of yeah, being able to write anymore
4: because ira had him out. Yeah. so probably the uh if I listed like five or six answers to your question, d Space Nine would certainly be one of them. So right. I, so we probably have.
3: Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. great. We've been pretty lucky with our yeah. projects. Yeah, we have. Yeah, the only book that didn't happen that we both would have liked to see happen was Harold and Maude because uh, it's one of our favorite movies and it had an anniversary coming up while I was still at Paramount and Bud Court actually wanted to do a book on it and the studio just didn't think it would sell enough. So I was really disappointed because I wanted to work on it. <laughs> it's uh,
1: that's amazing. I feel, like, I feel like the the there's a market for West Wing uh, fiction books that just haven't come out yet oh but- i think
4: yeah, probably, i think you're right but-, but boy you'd have to be a really good writer because how you i'm sure know? yes you'd, you'd have to somehow match aaron sorkin and that's that's a, yeah. that's a task yeah it's a yeah. task that's, yeah. that's for a real sure. task. yeah <laughs> for but sure. we, we we know how lucky we are because we you know we, we write for star trek how many projects of any kind are there that have lasted over 50 years and never, and even grown in their popularity. Yeah. Um, there's only a few Star Wars, I suppose, mm-hmm. but, you know, and, but, and sort of the, the uh, Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of them. I and mean, you go down the best picture list for the last, you know, whatever there are in 90 years or so. And um, there's only two or three that you would think, oh, I'd like to read a book about that. It's yeah. so you know, so it's
1: so it's so true too because even Mission Impossible, like people love yeah. the movies. Not many people yeah. have watched the show. Like the, yeah. it's very yeah. it's very different things. Whereas the uh, original very. series is is still the most syndicated and and watched TV show of all time. I know. Everybody
4: it's, it's knows Spock. Everybody knows yes. who Spock is, and I don't yeah. think everybody knows who. You know rick
1: is in his bar and you know <laughs> i mean i mean nothing against casablanca of course no <laughs> <laughs> i know it's a great movie i i'd love a book about all the failed attempts to do other casablanca, do casablanca. Movies and, yeah yeah there's like two tv shows out there fat which yeah. nobody remembers and i'm like let's oh, david soul david soul <laughs> <Saul.
4: laughs>
1: yes exactly <laughs> Uh, So what are you guys guys working on right now? It seems like you guys are always working. I imagine there's more than a few uh, 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 irons in the fire.
4: I I think at the moment we're retired. We don't have any plans. But like I said, you know, tomorrow morning the telephone could ring. We do
3: occasionally talk to people. But, you know, publishing is a precarious thing, too. We talked to somebody several months ago about a book that sounded like it'd be pretty exciting. But it also sounded like it would be very difficult to uh, Mm -hmm. produce. Yeah. And at the moment, and we haven't heard back from them. So either they found somebody better than us or they decided this is too damn hard.
4: And the, the, the internet, as you know, has changed the yeah. world. Yeah. Sure. And we, you used to be able to get together a whole bunch of pictures from Star Trek and publish them. And you got a Star Trek book and it sells copies. But today there's people who worked on the original series or on TNG who put all of their photographs online. And it's wonderful because, you know, they've got their websites and the fans are seeing it, but you can't publish a book because the pictures are up there free on the computer. It's a, publishing is another one of those companies, those industries that uh, that went through a great drop down because of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how
1: often have you picked up a phone book?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh well we'll wrap things up here um so if people want to get in touch with you or pick up any copies of your book where would you where would you send them
3: they can find any of our books pretty much on amazon although the deep space nine companion has been out of print for a long time
4: we've been campaigning, and we
3: have been bugging simon and Schuster about it but you know with the change of all the people there nobody really thinks about oh gee people would actually like this because even if thousands of people bought it that doesn't really do it for them yeah but Mm uh you know so
4: but uh, anyway we have we're 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 on facebook yes just with our names and we're also
3: on twitter so people can get in touch with us that way and that's what we always say Yeah. yeah You want to follow us on Facebook, fine. Yeah, if we, you want to write to us on Twitter, that's okay. too.
4: As it says on the books, we use our middle initials, and that's how you can find us on either Twitter or Facebook. And we talk to everybody. We get lots of, you know, lots of, we get letters, we get letters. And uh, <laughs> we talk to everybody. Yeah.
3: We're just your ordinary, nice writer people. <laughs>
4: yeah, we ain't got nothing else to we do. Never
3: got to write <laughs> on a TV show, so this is up on us
4: but uh you know that's a that's a funny thing lisa's got one up on us for sure um i told ira bear long ago if you ever have an opening on your writer's staff don't call me i have no (laughs) stories i mean i can write and i and i've complained to robert hude wolf one of the writers i've complained about this how come you can write stories but i can only write about you writing stories (laughs)
3: yeah oh well
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, anyway, yeah, uh, so yes, but the the most recent book is uh, The Art of Star Trek Discovery. Um, yes. It's a fantastic coffee table sized book. And and I got to say the images were all very fresh to me. So even though like,
4: yeah,
1: there's a lot that's out there on the internet, I felt like there was a lot of really interesting insight into the series inside this book. Um, so if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, definitely pick it up or just a fan of Star Trek in general. It's a it's a fantastic look into the inside of a, of the Star Trek series. So, as for us, uh, we are the Inglorious Trek experts You can find us on Twitter at Inglorious Trek, uh, Facebook, and Instagram um, as well. And also take a listen to the 430 Movie Podcast and best movies ever made uh, also put out through the electric surge podcast network uh want to give a very special thanks to uh well first of all lisa clink for being here uh this was always a lot of fun um glad you, you could join us um and uh also to our sound engineer bill ritter and executive producers uh mark a altman and uh dean devlin um uh terry erdman terry uh jay erdman and uh paul block uh thank you uh both for being here this was fantastic and a lot of fun so that's yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, say hi hi to dean for us we've
4: we've worked for dean as well yeah
1: that's awesome that's very cool um so for all of you out there thank you for joining us and we will see you next time keep on trekking in gloriously of course